you're listening to the Ultimate Outcomes Sermon Podcast. Our goal at Ultimate Outcomes is to help Christians understand and apply God's Word more fully. Here's Richard with today's sermon. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. So what is the uh, one question that uh, seems to be in common of all men when they're in a desperate condition? What's the one question that everybody that's in a desperate condition asks? Uh, Like, for example, uh, a guy uh, jumping out of an airplane realizing his parachute is not opening, or uh, somebody whose boat is sinking out in the middle of the ocean, or someone whose uh, house is on fire, or somebody who just was caught in the act of committing a felonious crime. What is the one question that all these men would have in common? (laughs) I think you'd agree that the answer would be, uh, what do I do now? What on earth do I do now? Um, What do I do now? Is there anything, anything at all? Is there any way I can escape Uh, this condition? Is there any way I can save myself or be saved from my desperate situation? Uh, Last week uh, in our series, Important Questions, we looked at a question that was somewhat related to this question of what can I do now, but it wasn't asked by somebody who was in a desperate situation. It was asked by somebody who was uh, pretty self-assured. He was uh, self-assured and self-righteous And if anyone deserved uh, the answer to his question, uh, he did, at least in his own mind. And so when he asked Jesus the question, uh, the rich young man asked Jesus the question, what good thing can I do to get eternal life? He was asking about salvation also, but he was expecting uh, Jesus to respond to him, oh, you're already in, your ticket's already been punched, you already have done what is necessary, you've lived a good life, and, and uh, you know, you, you all, I think he just expected Christ to confirm him. Uh, instead, uh, Christ showed him uh, the impossible uh, nature of the question itself, um, that it is not possible to do enough good to merit eternal life. Um, so, Uh, Today we're going to be looking, as we continue in our series, uh, we're going to be looking at the question asked, not from a self-assured point of view, but from a desperate point of view. And we're going to look at a similar question asked by those who are in a desperate condition. And in their desperate condition, they drop out uh, the part of the question that says, what good can I do to uh, gain eternal life? What good can I do to be saved? They just ask the question, what can I do? What can I do? They, they open up the question to any possibility, not just asking the question about merit. Now, Jesus, when he was asked the question by the um, uh, rich young man, what good can I do to uh, gain eternal life, didn't answer the question because there really isn't an answer to the question. He tried to show the young man the futility of the question by asking questions himself and directing him to consider his life in comparison to um, the commands of God and his obedience to God. And he wanted to show the, the young man as he reflected on the law that he couldn't have completely and perfectly obeyed the law, but the young man thought that he had. And so there was an impasse between the two. If the young guy thought that I, I have been perfect and uh, Jesus knows that he hasn't been perfect, then Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, uh, if you want to really love your neighbor as yourself, if you really want to be perfect, 
then, I, let, then, then just sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Then you will love your neighbor as yourself and you will love me with all your heart and you'll be perfect. Well, the young man, he didn't go away desperate. He went away sad because, because he still didn't uh, see that the law was a mirror to his soul showing him he needed more than just to be meritoriously good. Today, we're going to look at the same question or similar question, really, authored not by uh, those who were, um, you know, feeling self-assured, but for those who are uh, desperate enough to ask the right question. Uh, the question, not what good can I do to gain eternal life, but what in the heck can I do, period, to be saved? Have you ever been uh, brought low enough to see your need, or have we ever been brought low enough to see our need that we need something beyond ourselves to save ourselves? Are we desperate enough for any solution to our problem? Not a solution out of our own strength, but any solution, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, when, when uh, a person is in a desperate condition, suddenly they're opened up to any possibilities, not just the possibilities of self-sufficiency. What brings us to the point of de de desperation that gives us the clarity to see uh, things as they really are so that we might ask the right question? Uh, not the question, what good thing can I do? What can I merit to gain eternal life? But what can I do, period, to gain eternal life. This morning's message is entitled, uh, Cut to the Heart, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through uh, 40. So pray with me, if you would, as we look at God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord, that you have made the impossible possible. Uh, your son explained to his followers when they asked uh, last week about how can anyone be saved if this guy can't be saved? And, and, and you said it is impossible. Uh, what's impossible for men is not, however, impossible for God. And Lord, you have made possibilities for us to enter into eternity, possibilities that aren't possible without you. And Lord, we just pray, Father, that as we see these desperate men asking their desperate questions, that we would understand the right answer to the right question. Bless the reading of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll uh, back up and uh, deal with the context a little bit later, but let me just start out at verse 36 uh, of chapter 2 of Acts. And verse 36 uh, through 40 reads as follows. <clears throat> Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, and when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pled with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Well, so what brought the people to this state? Uh, uh, you know, what did Peter say to them in his preaching that filled them with so much grief and so much desperation that they are actually described in this passage as being cut to the heart? 
that their hearts had been penetrated deeply by the sorrow and the fear and the desperation of the condition that, that Peter had uh, displayed to them. Their hearts were pierced. Uh, and uh, this is interesting because a few short verses earlier, these same people, these same men whose hearts had been pierced by pre P Peter's preaching had been goofing on Peter and the disciples. It's, uh, look at these funny guys. They're, they're sounding like a bunch of drunkards out here. At 9 o'clock in the morning, they're sounding like a bunch of drunkards. The same people that were in desperate conditions just a few uh, minutes or half an hour or an hour later were just formerly uh, thinking uh, that these guys were a bunch of goofballs drunk in the morning. But suddenly, suddenly things switched. And when I thought about this switch, what came to mind immediately was the story of Haman. Uh, if you read the book of Esther, you know the story of Haman. And there was an amazing switch of attitude in Haman's heart at one moment in this story. Uh, Haman, who had prepared gallows for Mordecai to be hung on, uh, was hung on those gallows himself. And, and suddenly there was just this chain of at, you know, attitudinal change in Haman's heart when all of a sudden he realized his goose was cooked. Uh, Esther, if you know the story was a beautiful Jewish woman who became um, King Artaxerxes' uh, um, uh, queen. And uh, her origin as being Hebrew was unknown to the king. And uh, Haman, who hated the Jews, had sent out an edict throughout the land. On a certain day, the Jews could be extinguished. And uh, he hated particularly uh, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So uh, he had plots to both kill Mordecai and to the, the Jewish people in general. Um, Mordecai solicited Esther's help, and Esther petitioned the king at her own peril uh, and set up a series of banquets. Uh, at one point, right before the second banquet, uh, the king was up all night. He was, had, had insomnia, and uh, you know, if anyone wants to be put back to sleep, you read them history. So he asked for the... Uh, chronicles of the kingdom to be read to him. And in the reading of the kingdom, an account came where Mordecai had exposed a plot against him that had long since been forgotten. And he asked the question, was Mordecai ever honored for that plot that he exposed, ever honored for preserving me? And the answer was no. So the next day, the king decides he's going to honor Mordecai. But Haman came into the king's council and when Haman knew that the king was preparing to honor somebody in his hubris, he thought it must be me. So he gave the king advice on how to, how to um, honor Mordecai. And after the king agreed with his advice, the king told him, well, I want you to do that to Mordecai. And all of a sudden, the, uh, you know, Haman realized, I'm in trouble. His hubris changed to desperation. And... Uh, Here's a picture uh, depicting the moment at the second banquet when uh, Esther is appealing for the per preservation of her people. And the king asks, who is it that ha has plotted against them? And she points to Haman. And that day, Haman was hanged on the very gallows that, um, that he had constructed for Mordecai. And the reason why I share this story is it's a story of how arrogance suddenly turned into despair. And that's what happened with these uh, men at that day. They were goofing on the disciples. And suddenly, after hearing uh, Peter preach, their, their uh, levity turned into despair. Now, it says that in, in the context here that 
the disciples were gathered in one place. You know, I don't know, I've made a mistake all these years thinking that that one place was the upper room, just because the only place that they were definitely located prior to that was the upper room. But it doesn't say they were in the upper room at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says they were in one place. And as I read some commentaries on it, it seemed to make more sense that that one place was out in the open, probably in the temple court, uh, because what they were doing and what happened to them was on open display to all the people that are around. What happened was that the Spirit of the Lord fell down upon them, and one of the manifestations of that Spirit was that the disciples started speaking in the languages of the people that were gathered there in the temple to worship, and they understood in their own languages. Well, the Jews didn't understand what they were saying, so they thought they were drunk. And so the Jewish men were goofing on them, saying, you guys are a bunch of drunkards. But the, Peter starts out by saying, we're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and what you're seeing is what was foretold in the prophet Joel. And he went on from there to, uh, to use the Old Testament uh, and use the testimony of David and use their own personal eyewitness testimony to tell the Jews what uh, had happened and who Jesus was. And uh, for, for, for Jewish ears, his argument was irrefutable because they knew the very verses that he was referring to that testified to who Jesus was and what was happening that day. And even if they didn't uh, believe the eyewitness testimony of the disciples, they had before them their own prophets, and they had before them the testimony of King David, and they had before them enough evidence to say, oh, my goodness, we're in trouble. And when Peter dropped the hammer by saying, uh, look at fellas, this one whom you crucified, who you participated in his crucifixion, God has made your Lord and your Messiah. Whew caused a little panic. Not a little panic, it caused a huge panic. And all of a sudden, the, these men of levity were cut to the heart and they just were in a desperate condition. And they asked Peter and, and the disciples, brothers, brothers, just tell us what we should do. The theme of this morning's message is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, let's take a look at verses 36 through 37 again. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What happened to totally change their outlook and change the outlook of the listeners? I, I think that uh, it's well described in Proverbs 10.9 where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What, what happened to them is they had a whole new perspective of their accountability to Christ in, in light of their sin against Christ. The fear of the Lord is knowing that we're accountable to Him, knowing that He sees all and that all men are accountable to Him. And that knowledge of our accountability, coupled with an honest assessment of who we are, uh, creates uh, the kind of terror or despair or desperation that opens us up to change that opens us up to uh, asking the question that God answers, what can I do? All their support was knocked out from under them, and in desperation, all they could ask is, what do we do now? Their fear of being accountable and under the authority of the one they had just crucified was the beginning of a new direction. 
they became open to listening to the wisdom that the apostles might share with them uh, under this uh, fear of their accountability to Christ. Think about it this way. When does a person become open to change? When does a person decide, I need to change? Um, when are, are, you could ask the question differently, when uh, is a fool willing to abandon, abandon their folly? Let me show you some pictures. If uh, I were trying to convince you that um, excessive drunkenness is a foolish thing to engage in, these pictures wouldn't change your mind. You would just laugh at them. If I showed you pictures of people who have gotten excessively drunk, with that picture and you're, and you're given to excessive drunkenness, that probably wouldn't change your mind. Uh, this one probably wouldn't change your mind. You'd think it's funny. I think it's funny. <laughs> uh, this one wouldn't change your mind. This one probably wouldn't change your mind. <laughs> but this one might change your mind. That might change your mind. That one might change your mind. Or this one might change your mind. When I was a young man, um, I somehow escaped the consequence of driving drunk and being foolish. Barely on many occasions, but nevertheless escaped the consequence. And uh, I never was brought to contrition with my close calls. And it wasn't until I came face to face with a man about my age who had drowned in, in, a, in a hot spring that I went to in his drunken state that I was open to change. Uh, it takes a, a bit of desperation to want to change. It takes going, it takes, it, it's, change starts with the stark truth that no one can truly become a Christian without facing Jesus on the cross and our participation in putting him there. The same thing is true uh, of these men that is true of us, that we're responsible for the need for him to become our atoning sacrifice. The one who gave his life for us, gave his life for us because we caused its necessity. The very same one who is our Lord and our Christ is the one who will judge us. I'm accountable to the one that I defy in my sin. And I must account to him. And that's a pretty desperate thing if you don't know who God is. That, that puts a man in a desperate condition to say the, ask the question, what do we do now? Again, this morning, the theme of our message is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Point number one is grief is the door into glory. Uh, verse 20, 37 through 39, grief is the door into glory. People are always complaining that I'm going too fast off of my point, so I'll go back a second. <laughs> grief is the door to glory. Uh, verse 37 through 39. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. Um, their condition, their guilt, their horror at what they done, had done had, is what opened them up to consider a change. We don't ever change without regret. Have you ever heard a person say, I, I think I really need to change because I'm very happy with the way things are right now. All change involves an exchange of giving up one condition in favor of another condition, and it has to be pre preceded with the regret for the condition that uh, you're giving up in favor of the desire for the condition that you want to uh, go into. Think about it this way. Here's a picture of a psychopath. Why don't psychopaths ever change? Why is it that psychopaths are so intractable in their continuous behavior and they never change? They never change because it's not in their nature to be sorry. They don't feel sorrow for what they've done. They don't regret. They're incapable of regret, and therefore they're incapable of change. A psychopath is one who trusts, uh, or a psychopath, uh, one of the definitions of a psychopath, one of the, the uh, things that define a psychopath is a lack of remorse or guilt. And another thing that defines a psychopath, among many things, but another thing is a failure to accept responsibility. Without remorse, without contrition, without a knowledge of our accountability to God, we will never change. If we want to change from what we are to the glory that God has in mind for us, grief or regret is, a, is an agent of change. Remorse is an agent of change. Uh, we can face our guilt and deny it, or we can acknowledge it. Recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we're accountable to him should cause us some regret. Will that regret cause us to desire to change from our foolish behavior? Well, uh, it will if the Holy Spirit enables us to. This promise is an amazing thing when you think about it. When they ask uh, the apostles what they should do, they said, repent and be baptized. And then there's the promise of the Holy Spirit coming and living with us. The change agent is God himself. He is both the atoner of our sins and the sanctifier of our soul. Uh, to experience his love and forgiveness, his cleansing and his renewal, uh, we need to repent and be baptized. Again, um, the theme of this morning's message is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And point number one is grief is the door into glory. And point number two is repent Repentance is the reasonable response to guilt. Let's take a look at verses 37 through 38. Uh, when people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And the answer is, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem with guilt is a problem that we all have. Every man, it's probably one of the, it could be said to be the most intractable problem that, that humans deal with. 
I think if you were to ask the average psychologist, what is the biggest problem of mankind, they would probably, most of them would probably say guilt. What do you do with your guilt? Well, we can deny our guilt. We can um, project our guilt onto somebody else. We can justify ourselves in different ways, or we can repent from our guilt. So what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Change your view. Repent. Change your mind on how you view yourself and how you view Christ. Repent and, and acknowledge that God is right, even uh, in, in the midst of our being wrong. Now, you know, there is false repentance and there's true repentance. And it's hard for us as men to look into a person's heart and know whether repentance is real or not. False repentance just deals with the dread of the consequences of sin. But real repentance is actually hating sin itself actually being disgusted with sin itself. If I show you this picture of this guy in jail, would you say he looks repentant? He looks repentant. But we really don't know whether he's sorry because he got caught or whether he's sorry because he's disgusted with what he has done. True repentance is being sorry even if we don't get caught. We're truly repentant if we're sorrowful over our defiance against good, what is good, right, true, beautiful, and just, even if we don't, aren't currently suffering the consequences. There are many consequences that I should have suffered in my youth that I didn't, that other people did, who did the very same thing. Hopefully I'm just as sorry and just as repentant for my folly than I would have been if I would have gotten caught. I know, you know, I know that I'm not really because I sometimes tell the stories of getting away with stuff with a, a little joy in my voice. I think it's funny. And as long as I think it's funny, I'm not really, I haven't really come to grips fully with its, uh, po you know, with, with its consequence. Christ's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion was the very center of mankind rejecting what is true, beautiful, and good, killing what is right and just and holy. To repent is to reject what is false, ugly, and evil and to be baptized into Christ into what is true, beautiful, and good. It is to turn back from our acts against Christ and to embrace His holiness, to be baptized into Him and to yield to His mercy. You know, we just serve an amazing God. We serve an amazing God who even on the cross is saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. We serve one whose love is everlasting whose charity is without end. Peter told those who were penitent that day, not only was Jesus their Lord, but he was their Christ. He was their Savior. The very, the very cross that they had crucified him on, or we crucified him on, was the, the symbol of our own atonement, the atonement for our own sins. What an amazing God we serve both full of truth and full of mercy. What an amazing combination is there on the cross. Again this morning, 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Grief is the door into glory. And repentance is the, re- is the reasonable response to guilt. I'd like to conclude this morning just by reading um, Proverbs 9.10, our theme this morning. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is knowing that God sees all and that we're accountable to Him. And that is the prerequisite or the beginning of asking the question, what should I do? How should I live wisely? How should I respond in light of who I am and who God is? The rich young man asked the question, what good thing should I do in order to get eternal life? Uh, Will that question be good enough? As for me, the question I ask is, what should I do? And the answer is, I should trust in in what Jesus has done for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you this morning and we thank you for this example and this question and and Peter's answer. And we pray that it would help us uh, uh, walk more circumspectly in our own lives and appreciate your love for us even more that the one in whom uh, we defied is the one whose love is unfailing and whose mercy is never-ending. You are an amazing God. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the Ultimate Outcomes Sermon Podcast. Ultimate Outcomes is a nonprofit organization founded on the biblical principle that knowing and applying God's truth makes a difference in the quality and destiny of our lives. It is our prayer that this podcast and its resources bless you and your churches as much as it has blessed all of us who have learned from the biblical teachings of Richard Elwell. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit www.ultimateoutcomes.org.